Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of the Judo Talk podcast. Judo Talk, Talk, 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 Judo Talk, Talk. Welcome everyone. Uh, so quickly before we start, I want to say a massive thank you to last week's guest, Robert. Uh, so much information there, so enjoyable to have that conversation. And yeah, massive thanks to you. It was really, really great. Yep, yeah, thanks for that. And I guess I feel like I'm spoiling you guys a little bit because this week is just as good um, with my guest. And I think you guys are absolutely love this. Really insightful. Um, this uh, this week's guest, Natalie Powers, you'll know. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this. And Natalie come across so well. So understanding of herself, her judo. Uh, was really honest with me about lots of things, which is which made it such a great, enjoyable interview for, for myself. So a big thank you to Natalie. Um, also, uh, randomly... Well, I guess it wasn't random for them. I received uh, some T-shirts in the post the other day, and I want to say a big thank you to Judo Life Clothing. Um, they sent through a load of T-shirts, which was totally unexpected. And um, yeah, no, they were really good. I the thing with the podcast is you do the podcast. I speak to so many of you guys who are listening. And the only interaction I get is, you know, through Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, whatever you guys. And getting a little thing through the post like that was absolutely awesome. So I want to thank you guys. It, Judo Life Clothing was just something that they set up um, during the lockdowns uh, for something to do. And yeah, no, it was really, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to think of me and send that stuff through. So a big thank you to Barry and to Colin for that. Although Colin, you didn't actually know it was sent to me, so I think it's more Barry. Thanks, Barry. Um, yeah, I, I'm sitting here. When I'm recording this part, it's Thursday morning, so England last night won the... What didn't win? Won the semi-finals. Um, and I was absolutely... I get so involved. Abs- I literally, I can't. I get so nervous. What are you guys like watching sport? I, I'm with it with pretty much every single sport that I watch, as soon as I've got an interest, whether it's my team, so I'm a Portsmouth football club supporter, or whether it's the country, football, rugby, judo, whatever it is, I just can't help but just feel everything. I absolutely, sporting fan, I love watching uh, the games. And I was thinking about the difference between the way I feel about judo and football, and I think the biggest one is, is I have some sort of understanding of what's happening in judo. Um, yeah, with, with my football knowledge, it's I, I love it as a fan, but I don't have any intricate knowledge of the sport. So I can literally just sit back and enjoy watching the game. With judo, I'm always analysing what's happening in the fight. I'm always thinking about that. So sometimes I find it hard to relax and, and just watch it purely as a spectator sport. And I wondered how other coaches were, whether they struggled with watching judo as well because they're, they're watching everything that goes into each section of a fight or whether you enjoy it as much as you enjoy a sport that you haven't got that that sort of invested knowledge in but yeah no so I'm obviously really happy super nervous for Sunday evening against the Italians who are playing really really well and yeah I just love it and I think 
I love the whole, I love the whole mindset behind watching elite sport as well. Watching how the players are having to deal with the media, especially, and that's one thing I find with judo. And I, I always wonder whether countries like Japan, when it comes to the Olympic Games, have an advantage over countries like England. Because where judo is a high-profile sport, everything that they do is under media attention. So they actually start to climatize and get used to the, the actual interviews, the media. So like sometimes I see it, not that I've ever been to a games um, as an athlete or anything like that, but I wonder sometimes with our players, they have no media attention whatsoever, no interest apart from the few bits, uh, few bits from British judo. And then all of a sudden they go to the games and you've got BBC, you've got their local area that's really interesting. And whether there's any way of sort of starting to acclimatize for that. And that's why I wonder whether I'm going to go into the games a little bit at the end as well, but I wonder whether there needs to be a concerted effort by British Judo to actually raise the profile of the sport and actually do more media things, allow people in, give more, you know, like set up a YouTube channel where they have to speak to the cameras and deliver technical advice and, you know, just start being more climatized to it. Because I think if that's not a distraction, they like you'll hear from Natalie, the amount of work that goes in between her and Darren, her coach, on getting so many things right for the games. And I wonder whether the media attention is something that we, we neglect and something that we can do really, really well with podcasts like mine, uh, with YouTube, uh, with Facebook, you know, all those sorts of things to to try and start giving them a, a little, it's not an edge, it won't be an edge, but I tell you what, it won't be a disadvantage and it will, it will allow, and things like Ashley, who does, like I was reading his interview and I know Ashley really well, we grew up together and because he's a self-funded athlete he's had to do loads of tv stuff and i wonder whether that is something now he doesn't have to think about when he goes to a major games is that media attention or at least it's something that he's able to cope with a lot better and some of you especially the guys that are going for the first time sarah adlington chelsea giles and lucy renshaw what is they have no experience of the game. This game is going to be so far removed from anything else. What's their ability to deal with the media? You know, so that's going to be interesting. Anyway, I've waffled on too long. I want to get into this because I want to talk about the games a little bit at the end. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so this is this week's podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Natalia. Her audio is a tiny bit quiet, um, but I think... I think it's fine. I, I've listened to it. I, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. And stay on for the end. And I'll speak to you guys then. Have a great one. Hey, guys, and welcome to this week's episode of Judo Talk. And today I'd like to welcome a very special guest. Welcome, Natalie Powell. Say hello, Natalie. Hi. <laughs> that was very coy. What was that about? <laughs> yeah, no, firstly, Natalie, I want to start by saying thank you for your patience. So, I had organised this for 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning with Natalie. And the second we logged on to Zoom, my whole internet crashed out. So I had to literally race to my judo club uh, and start again. And thankfully, Natalie didn't go off and do anything better. So thanks for thanks sticking around, Natalie. <laughs> so how are you? Let's start with that. How are you? Yeah, no, not too bad at all. Um, just training, really, and isolated, really. My life is very boring at the moment. 
um, in and around training. Obviously, I'm really enjoying training and getting close to the games now. So you get the, the nerves and the pressure that comes with that. So it's quite exciting times. But I mean, off the mat, it's very, very boring. Mm. And how is training? Because um, uh, obviously you missed out on the World Championships, which must have been disappointing. But how are the injuries? How are you getting, getting on? Yeah, no, we've I've got a really good team around me in Cardiff and we've put a really good rehab program in, uh, together and I'm really getting there now. Um, I did my first proper judo session yesterday and felt we're in a really good place. So um, I think actually having four weeks since the Worlds to taper off a little bit, recover. Um, we've had such a big block now since lockdown. It's just been train, train, train. We, I haven't been able to compete as much as I would normally have done for COVID and other reasons. So um yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty heavy time. A lot of more training load than I would be used to actually. So the little bit of recovery from getting injured has probably done me the world of good, really. And what does a heavier training load? Because obviously, you couldn't get out and travel. I know British fighters we we rely on travelling for our round dory quite a lot. So what was the heavy load for you? Um. So just being here all the time. So say I don't know for the first two months I was just training. Uh, well, six days a week, two or three sessions a day. Um, whereas in normal time, I'd probably be traveling to a camp, um, maybe twice in that period, maybe one competition. And when you travel, you have a few days off because you've got to travel. And when you get back, you need a bit of recovery. Whereas when I've been training all the time, I haven't really plan- didn't plan my recovery so much because, and then we looked at the block after about three months and I'd suddenly done like two weeks extra training than I would have normally done in that period. So, um, Actually, yeah, it's been pretty beneficial in terms of training. It's just, um, I picked up a few niggles along the way and we had to reassess and um, really plan my recovery. So that's been a much bigger focus this year, the recovery aspect of it as well. Um, and getting older, I've noticed my body's definitely needing a lot more time to recover through, through age as well. So yeah, it's been different. And did you, cause you would have been in a full on lockdown in the first one, what happened there? Did you, did Wales have any exemptions or were you stuck like everybody else? Yeah, no, we were stuck like everyone else in um, in terms of the rules, but we did preempt it a little bit and we got ahead of the game a little bit. And um, uh, Darren managed to sort out an Airbnb for me and my training partner and his girlfriend. Um, and we stayed there for the whole first lockdown. Oh. And it, it was great, really. Um, I was able to train. So I was able to do my strength and conditioning very similar to what I did before. I was able to do all my technique because we had access to... Um, Stephen Abley's um, private gym. Mm. Uh, he's got a day of his own, which was just for us. So for those first three months, we made so much gains, really. Like I was able to really focus on my new and the technical improvements, which with the gains being only three months away at that point in 2020, I would never have been able to do that. So we had a really focused block on technical work and um, just improving areas of my body, like my core, my core really needs a lot of work, but in time for the games in 2020, we didn't have time to work on that. Mm. But with this extra time, we could really focus on the, the things that we probably wouldn't have had time to focus on. So I was really lucky in that period. And where you at? So you and your training partner were actually training, and I'm guessing Darren was like on Zoom or something. Was he on Zoom or? Yeah, so he was um, coming into the Zoom sessions through a little. Uh, well, no, he's coming to the sessions via Zoom. Um, yeah, so that was different. But you know what? It was like a bit of a novelty in the beginning and bit different and we could switch him off whenever we wanted to stop listening to him so <laughs> <laughs> yeah I bet I bet that actually was a benefit uh, yeah being able to switch him off I bet you uh, he will listen to this you do know that though don't you <laughs> yeah yeah 
understands. It's funny actually. I was talking to Robert Erickson uh, this week as well, and he he put the phrase together like it. Was, I wish I could remember exactly, but basically it was like a bonus year. He's had a bonus year with his team to prepare. Is that sort of how you've seen it? Yeah, do you know what I had, did actually? I, I know in the beginning it was really difficult, particularly at the start when it was so uncertain. We were in lockdown, but we weren't sure if the game was going on. Media was going crazy. Lots of different stories saying, oh, it's going to be postponed, it's going to be cancelled. And I think for that period, I think it was about a month, my head was all over the shop then a little bit. I was, yeah, getting really anxious and stressy. But as soon as they said the game has been postponed a year, it brought me real clarity then. And I, I just knew what I had to do then was... So I just put everything into training, really. Just focused on structuring my week around training. And I was just so fortunate that Darren and Scott Wales were able to put me in that position where I had a team around me. I had everything I needed. The only thing I wasn't really getting at that point was just boys around Dory. And when the rest of the country can't even get in a dojo or get in a gym, I was... I was in a really fortunate position. Yeah, and that's the thing. Nobody in this country, but I remember, you know, on Instagram, watching the stories, watching, like, the Uzbekistan, like, watching all the other nations still training full full pelt. Was there any point thinking, you know, they're able to do, still continue doing all that? Because they've got such depth within their nation of being able to train, and maybe their rules were different. You knew these countries were still training. Was any of that entering your head, or did you just ignore it? You know, I was I was aware of it, but at the same time, I felt like I was still doing probably 80% of what I would normally be doing. Because I think we train a little bit different in Wales anyway. We don't have the bodies on a day-to-day basis like you do in those countries. So uh, the way I train is very much around situation stuff and practicing the situations that I, I need to improve on and focusing on physicality, but specific parts physicality, like I don't know, improving my strength endurance or my power endurance or my lactate tolerance or my beauty max like everything is because we don't have the bodies and the stuff that everyone else has we have to do it much more like athlete centered and be really specific about what we're doing so actually in that time we were just focusing on my weaknesses and really building on them so I didn't really feel like I was losing losing out because I was still improving in a lot of areas so and I guess um it might have been a different story if you were at the start of your career maybe you know now you you you've won the medals that you've won and you you're in a different stage of career maybe that was a little bit easier do you think yeah no definitely um yeah I feel really for the younger kids that are just starting out in the program and they just want to get they get experience competitions camps this is really difficult for them it's difficult for everybody but I think you're right I think being a more experienced athlete knowing where my weaknesses are knowing what I need to develop um and I think when you get higher up in the rankings and longer on in your career it's those one percent that really make the difference mm. I've done a year junior I've been to camps and done I don't know 100 randories of camp and I've got the volume in me that it's, it's those fine things so you don't often get the opportunity to really develop those things um so yeah this extra year has really um yeah really gives us a chance to focus on those areas and yeah, make, make some really good improvements. Yeah, I think that's something I, it'd be really interesting for you to sort of talk about, actually, because there's going to be many people that are listening. And, you know, when I'm running around Dory session for a non-elite team and stuff, you know, you get in, you do your warm up and there's a heavy emphasis on technique and just ran Dory. How is that different for you now? Like when you're going onto a judo mat, especially in Wales, where you're not going to get that volume of round Dory, how is that different? now when you step onto that mat what's your session like 
Yeah. I think people put a lot of emphasis on, oh, we've got to get the volume around Dorian. We don't have enough in this country. We need to get more. We need to get more. Which is true. We don't have the bodies and we definitely need to go abroad and get that volume of Randori. But it's how you use that Randori. Um, I feel there was a year in my career when I um, was in Warsaw and I was going abroad a lot. I was doing camp after camp after camp. More camps than I've ever done in my life, but I wasn't improving. It's all well and good having the bodies and having the volume of people to train with. But unless you're being really specific in what you want to get out of that Randori, you're not progressing. Like, I think there's a place for it when you're younger, just doing the volume, get it in your, your body, mental toughness and improving your resilience. But Randori without any direction, you just may as well not do it, in my opinion. So I felt like I went for a period of about, yeah, good 12 months where I was just doing Randori and I wasn't getting anything out of it. So I feel like it would have been better to be in a place where I've just got one or two partners working on specific situations that are going to help me progress and technically improve and then going away to a camp for a week to just try those things out and see if they've worked and improved and then come back for three weeks, do the same again. So there is a big emphasis on, oh, we need lots of Randora, we need lots of partners, but if you're not using it in the right way, I don't think it actually has any benefit. Yeah, I think that's really important what you've just said there. And I've definitely had a lot of people ask me, even on the podcast about randories, how long should you do randory for? How long, you know, what what techniques should be used in randory? But I think you hit the nail on the head where you said, well, what is the point of it? We really forget that. And do you feel like now you're at that high end, now it is literally the specifics. What do you really need to gain from each practice? Yeah, I really do feel like that. Um Randori's got its place and going abroad regularly to get a feel of the, your competitors. And But you know what? I've fought these girls in my workout for so many years now. I know them inside out. I know what they do. I know their strengths, their weaknesses. Um, yeah, it's all about improving those fine things to beat them and finding ways to beat them. So going to loads of camps and fighting them all the time, I feel like they're just getting a feel for me. I don't think they're necessarily... I'm not getting as much out of it as they are. Um, so I feel like I'd be much better off in Cardiff with a select few players around me um, working on specific uh, drills that are going to help me beat them. Um, so, yeah, I see less importance of Randori, like huge volumes of it now than I did when I was, was younger. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? The, the more they get their hands on you, the more they've got a chance as well. And I guess that's the, having the privilege of being in the position you are now, isn't it? You're, you are at that top at you know, the highest sphere of judo, where actually you don't need to do as much competition as somebody who's starting off, do you? Yeah, no, I think that's been a hard different change for me as well, because I know like in the rear cycle, I was fighting every weekend and I just wanted to get out there and always chasing the points because I was going head to head with Gemma and I was always chasing, chasing, chasing. But when we actually look back at the competitions, it was like one in three competitions I'd probably medal at. Mm. So we're thinking like this cycle now, why was I competing as much? It's because you're always chasing and feeling like you need to do that. And it's hard to step back and just say, no, I'm going to really focus on this competition. But actually, when I do that, um, I was I was performing at the competitions I was targeting. But I didn't need to do those two extra competitions in between. Um, so you just learn, don't you? As you get older, you, you just hindsight, isn't it? It's brilliant. I mean, if I knew everything I knew now, when I, uh, then it would be so much better. But I de- we're definitely taking the approach now more of... Um, highlighting competitions and really trying to work for that competition and also it gives you more training time as well if you're fighting every weekend again you're needing to recover you're traveling you're missing so many training days um so if you're just highlighting those competitions and just really working forward to them and making sure you're peaking for that event you've got a much better chance of performing at your level but obviously when you are like at the higher end of your career that's a 
something you can afford to do. Whereas when you're in the lower ranks trying to work your way up, um, you can't do that the same because you're not you're not at the level yet. You need the experience. You need to like get a good draw to get through a few rounds, get a few points, get yourself up into the seeding positions. Um, so yeah, later on in your career, you've definitely got more more luxury to do those sort of things. I think. Um Breaking through can be one of the biggest slogs, can't it? Because there isn't really a season in judo for somebody trying to break through. It's literally, you've got to keep turning up. You've got to keep going to event after event. And because there's no season, that actually makes it harder for players to break through, doesn't it? Oh, 100%. I think in judo, the biggest thing for me is staying injury-free. If you can stay injury-free, you're already, like, going to be like 50% of the people I think because everybody gets so much injuries and I think recovery is such a big part of judo and your rehab and making sure you throw well and stretch before and after every session I think these little things that I've been really focused on throughout my career have made a massive difference to the amount of time I've been spent on the mat um I've been really lucky I've got a touch wood now like but injury wise throughout my career compared to a lot of people I've, I've been really fortunate I think that's because of the amount of recovery and the amount of stretching and foam rolling and things I like do around training mm. which just keeps me on the mat because I just think if you're on the mat you're progressing if you're off the mat you're stepping back months 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 and in judo terms like you don't get to the top in a couple of years do you it takes a good 10 years to really get to the top of your game so I think if you can stay on the mat you're really ahead of the game already and then getting a consistency of performance um for me I was really lucky in terms of the timings of my break like breakthrough after the London Games, there was a period, there's always about a six month period after the Games where the Grand Prix, Grand Slams, it's all juniors in them and younger people, the people that were at the top of the Games for that last cycle, normally have a rest or drop out for a period. Um, so I was really lucky to get into those competitions that time and pick up a couple of Grand Prix medals. They weren't Grand Prix medal level, you mm. know, they weren't the people they normally, but having those two Grand Prix medals pushed me up the ranking list a bit. So then by the time everybody came back, I was starting to get into the like top 20 of the world and getting an eighth seed in here or there. But when you start getting those eighth seed ins, you've suddenly got a much better draw. Uh, you don't have to fight those top eight players in the first round of every Grand Prix and Grand Slam. Um, and if you just, when you get that opportunity, you take it, you suddenly get an opportunity to break through. I think this cycle could be a lot more difficult because obviously the game's a year later. So I don't know what's going to happen in that there's only a year till qualification starts again. So people are going to be wanting to come back quicker this time. Mm. So I'm not sure it's going to be that same opportunity for the younger players to really break through this time as there is in a normal cycle. And hopefully there is for their sake, but I do think it landed really nicely for me in order to um, really break through and get those points early on, which give me the seedings. And then by the time the Olympic cycle starts, if you're in a good place seeding wise, it gives you a massive advantage. Um, and I think, um, yeah, that's potentially something that people have missed missed out this cycle and last cycle, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what they've been thinking, but it was definitely in my mind from the beginning of the cycle to try and get a top eight seed in for the games or get um, a good place in before the qualification started in order to be in a good place to start qualification. Yeah, and I'd like you just to go into that top eight selection because I don't think people will necessarily fully appreciate it because there's going to be people that just go, well, when you enter a competition uh, to be the best, you've got to beat everybody. But that, I don't think they fully understand. So what was your psyche going in, uh, going in and trying to qualify top eight for the games? Um, 
So like you said, obviously at the Olympic Games, anything can happen. It's like no other competition. Like you've got Fabio Basili, unranked, wins the game. Sally wasn't ranked in the top eight. Medal. Like it's 100% possible. You have to believe you're going to beat everybody on that day. But in my head, you want to give yourself the best chance you possibly can before going into that Games. And if, if you can be ranked top eight, you're going to avoid the top seven athletes in the world for the first round. That's only a benefit, isn't it? In, in my opinion, like I'm very risk averse and I like to make like, um, I don't know what the word is, um, remove as much chance as I possibly can and put myself in the best position because I know I'm risk averse and I'd rather not fight the top eight in the first round um, and then build my way into the competition. Um, and also, if you're in the top eight, you also don't have that first round fight. So instead of five fights at the Olympics, you'd have four, which in my head again is a massive is a massive step forward um, in the competition. So yeah, I completely understand both views. You if if you've got them in the Olympics, you've got to beat everyone. And it, with both methods, that's the case. Um, the other thing, I think I read a, a study as well that um, I think it's one out of five. No, one out. Of, let me get this right. Now. I'm going to tell you the wrong stats here. <laughs> I think. Two of the four medalists on average come from the top four. Mm -hmm. And then one out of the, from eight to five, it's a one in four chance to get a medal. And then from out of the rest of the group, one in 16. So obviously this isn't good fact, but when you look at the averages, if you're in the top eight, you've got quite a bigger percentage chance of getting a medal. So, I mean, I like to play the odds, you know? <laughs> yeah, it is the odds. And I, I think it's really sensible. But even silly stuff, like if you're if you're ranked in the top eight and you know you're going to fight second round, that gives you a little bit more time to get your breakfast down, to get your rehydration sorted. And it's all of those small little benefits that people won't necessarily think about. You know, like if you're waking up your first match off of the day, nerves are going to be absolutely rife. Anything can happen on that first match. And, you know... You can say, oh, that's what the preparation's for. That's what, you know, somebody's got to do. But if you can take that risk away, if you can take that out of the situation, then surely that's good. Yeah, 100%. I, yeah, I think if anything you can do before the game to prepare yourself or put you in yourself in the best position to get that medal, I think it's only a benefit. Um, but likewise, if you're in the games, you've got a chance, you know. Mm. It's better than not being in it. Oh, 100%, yeah. <laughs> so what's it look like now for you... Um, leading up to the games because I was one of these people I I didn't think the games would go ahead I just couldn't see how they would get it to work but obviously thankfully they've, they've got it to go what is your time now looking from today up until when you compete like what what's going to go into that getting you over there all the bits in between um well that's a good question we did we haven't got the final details yet I think the official announcement is on the 5th of July so I think we'll get a lot more information on the specifics about it then but um from my understanding so far there'll be a two-week isolation period before you leave um in wherever you're based so I'll be in Cardiff for that two the two-week period um and then I leave on the 20th um and then when you get there uh, you, well, before you leave, you'll have to have two COVID tests. I think it's maybe four or five days apart and within 72 hours of leaving. Um, and then you're tested every day then on arrival. That's the protocol. I'm not entirely sure if we have to isolate for a certain amount of period when we get there or will we just be able to stay in the bubble and just be tested every day. I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, but I'll also be doing a time shift before I leave as well. Um, so I'll be getting into Japanese time, um, shifting an hour each day from eight days out. 
um, which I've done a couple of times in the past and I've found it means I don't lose any training days or lose any days to just acclimatize or get over jet lag. Um, so I'm going to do that protocol and also acclimatization as well. I'm going to do a week of um, hot, hot baths um, each day. I think it's a six day thing and you need to go in a hot bath about 40 degrees for an hour, uh, no, up to 40 minutes each day uh, after training and to improve your heat tolerance, which I, I struggled with a bit at the Worlds um, in 2019. Um, it was very hot, very humid, mm. um, and it took a lot out of me in terms of energy. So um, that's something we've highlighted and going to really try and nail that before I go. Because I, I, I imagine a lot of the people that make weight often are really used to this hot bath and mm. getting... Um, but my tolerance is awful. Like I went in there the other day and it was like 10 minutes in there and I was like, please get me out of here. I don't think I can last any longer. So I'm not sure how um, those uh, six days in a row of 40 minutes are going to go, but I stuck it up and just <laughs> stick it out. Yeah, like, I'm, not looking for I, I'm not sure you're going to get much sympathy from anybody when when you're saying oh, I've got to sit for 40 minutes in a bath I'm pretty sure there's going to be lots of people going, oh yeah that sounds awful Natalie yeah, I know it doesn't sound very it sounds lovely but I'll tell you what when you'll soon you'll soon feel my pain are you allowed bubbles or no bubbles no, no bubbles no water no hydration here either it's not comfy bath so with obviously what you've talked about is for me pretty it's right up there on preparation and I'm guessing you've got a pretty strong team around you to help you with 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 that sort of planning can you just give us a little background of what support you have yeah sure um so I'm I'm in Cardiff I am based uh, and working with Darren Warner who's my coach and We've got a great team around me. It's so individualized and athlete-centered. Um, I've got a physiologist, a strength and conditioning coach, a nutritionist, physio, um, doctor, everything I need, really. Like, really, they meet weekly, plan the week, depending on what my needs are, what my injury status is, what we, we set goals each month, and then work towards them. Every aspect of is really tailored to my, my needs. Um, so yeah, it's, it's in conjure. So I, I went to Warsaw to the center for a couple of years. And so in 2016, they centralized the program and said, if you want to get any sort of funding or any support, really, you, you need to be based there. Um, it was a really big decision for me because what I had in Cardiff was, it was top level. Like I knew it was as good as it gets, you know, I had everything I needed around me. I was every year, year on year, I was improving. And my results were getting better year on year. I was happy with my coach. So I was in a really good place in terms of my judo. Um, but obviously the program got centralized. So yeah, I needed funding. I couldn't stay here because I'd have no income. So I had to take the step and I moved to Warsaw. And um, mm. yeah, in 2017, um, I bought a house there. Um, I thought, right, I'm going to make this go. I'm going to, I'm going to give it my 100% because I've not been in before. I don't know what it is compared to what I've got now, really. Um, I know what I've got now is great. And if that is as good as it is here, then there'll be no problem. Um, so I, I went there and I, I really tried to make it work for a couple of years, but it, it just didn't fit for me. It just wasn't working in the way I needed it to work. Um, there's a lot more players there, uh, fewer coaches. Uh, fewer staff like a lot less staffed uh, athletes um and the program is a lot more generalized um 
I would say it's quite systematic, it's system-centered. It's more about everybody as one whole. So you've got all the girls doing the same weights program, all the girls doing the same conditioning program. Um, whereas I've been very used to a more tailored approach. Like if I needed to work on power endurance because I was in that phase or maybe my VO2 match was slipping. So we really, really do a block on that. Um, we'd be much more specific on the conditioning and the, the elements I needed to get out of it. And the same with weights. If my core was weak, we'd be focused on that. Or uh, with my, uh, I do a lot of my techniques off one leg. Um, so we, we would do a lot of work off single leg and really transferring it to my throat so it, it um, crossed over nicely. Um, but I didn't get any of that in water. So it was very much a general strength program. We go through the general phases, which is, is great. And you see improvements in that method. But at the top end, when you're really looking at those, maybe as a general program for, I know, cadets juniors, you get in volume in and you want to get stronger and fitter and more robust, mentally tough. It's got its place, but at the level I was at, I just wasn't seeing any improvements on a technical or physical point of view. And I really needed that tailored approach, um, which Darren um, was able to give me in Cardiff and the team around me. So yeah, it come to a point really where um, if, I, if I wanted to really push on and push for that Olympic medal in Tokyo, I had to really make a change uh, in 2019. Um, so it, it meant sacrificing funding because at the moment, if you're not based in the center, you have no, you, you can't get the APA, which was 28 grand a year. So for me, it was like, do, do I want 28 grand a year or do I want to try and get that Olympic medal? So yeah, that's what it came down to me really. I had to go back to Cardiff, um, but I'm just really fortunate that I'm in a position where Sport Wales can really support me in terms of physio and nutrition and coaching and all that. They have this, the whole package around me. Other athletes aren't as fortunate and not in the same position. Um, so it's really difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, um, it's not ideal, but I'm where I am now. I'm really happy with the decision I made, and I, I know 100% it was the right decision for my judo and my progression, um, becoming a better athlete and get getting what I need. Um, judo is such an individual sport, and it's not one size fits all. I think, um, particularly at that top level, when you look at teams like France, Japan, they're all they're all very athlete centered. At that top end, they they get what's needed for them again Holland as well they're very very athlete centered so I think it's really important that that top end and maybe we don't have the resources or the uh yeah, the resources or the staff in order to provide that support for everybody if they're all in that one center um yeah so I think in my opinion the best system we had was the semi-centralized system of the last cycle mm. um in the rear cycle I think we had it in a really good place I think you had a couple of players in Camberley, a couple of players in Scotland, a couple of players in Wales, a few players in the centre. Um, you kind of spread your resources. So Scotland's got a good base of support. So is Cardiff. So is Camberley. Everywhere's got and Bath as well. So for me, I feel like it's better to tap into all those resources and the coaches that are all there. We've got some great coaches in the country all across the all across the centres. There's some great coaches and great um, support teams. Um, but by pushing them all into one center where you've only got one support team and one set of coaches, you're actually reducing your talent pool massively. Um, if you just allow, like in the real cycle to, for people in Scotland, Wales, and Camberley and Bath to have APAs, if they reap the standards, um, I think we'd be in a much better place. You'd also have, so at the moment, there's only enough finances. Well, if you put them on in Warsaw for like maybe two players in every weight, whereas suddenly if you open those five centers back up, 
you suddenly got another 10 players in every way competing and they've all got their own coach, their own support system. And if they reach the level, they'll get fun, they'll get funding. Whereas at the moment, there's no route because if you reach the level, you don't necessarily get funding. And academic and junior level, if you don't choose to go to Warsaw, then there's no route for you. You can't go to competitions because they automatically get selected over you, even if you're better. So yeah, I think for elite performance, it needs to be semi-centralized from my experience of experiencing both semi-centralized and centralized. And for the, yeah, and for the development of British Judo in general, I think by centralizing, we're cutting off all our grassroots and all our developmental players. And I think it's a real shame. And I really hope something can be done about it in the next cycle. Cause yeah, it makes me sad to think that all these young players coming through really can't get that opportunity to develop because we've got players here in Cardiff now. They're coming on really well. Like they're working with Mark and the improvements I've seen over lockdown. Yeah, amazing. Um, I just, and I just see them not being able to compete or I know they're better than some of the players that are getting selected for events, but they're not getting the opportunities. And yeah, I think if you just give everybody the same target, you've got to get this level. If you get to this level, we'll give you an opportunity. You also create competition rivalries if you're just getting the opportunities because you're at a certain center that's not making anyone better you're just you're going to start coasting because you're just getting the opportunities from doing very little um so i, I think semi-centralizing and getting all the centers competing against each other again is just it's really needed so yeah i hope i hope something can be done to progress this in the, the next cycle and I think this is an absolutely huge huge topic and I think anybody listening most probably won't fully understand what's happening at your level and I think it'll be very easy to say think you know listen to this and think well Natalie's got you know a psychologist uh, or a physio everything that she could possibly want and it's an easier decision not to take the money and come back to stick to Wales because that but there's also many athletes like I know that Ashley he doesn't get near, anywhere near that sort of level of service, but he still chooses not to opt in there. Um, Sally was, I don't want to talk about Sally because obviously she can speak for herself, but she was at the centre, she moved away. And I think even bigger than that is what you hit upon junior and cadet. It kills that grassroots level off because there isn't, there's going to be so many kids and don't forget their pot of money will only go so far. It will only stretch. And there'll be kids around 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, starting to have a look at what they want to do with their lives and think, well, there's no option for me because I've got nowhere to go. I can't go to Warsaw because maybe I'm number three, not number two or number one. So I can't go there. There's no point going anywhere else because there's no, no opportunities for me. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I also think as well, if I look at a lot of the British players that have come through in the past, They've not necessarily been the top juniors either. They're not necessarily the number ones and twos. Often number ones and twos are develop a little bit earlier, maybe a little bit stronger, a bit more physical at that age and get the junior world European results. But then if I think of people like Sarah Clark, you and Burton, myself, we've all come through as seniors. We weren't, we weren't there as juniors. So actually, if you're just selecting the one and two in every weight, you've cut off a lot of world and European medalists from the last, yeah, in Britain's, Britain's recent history. Um, a lot haven't been junior number one and twos. So if you cut off all the centers that are housing all these number three and fours and really giving them opportunities to develop, um, yeah, you're really, you're really cutting off a lot of people. Also, it's just so hard to predict as well. And on, on the reverse side of that, so from the age of 12, 
I was most probably number one, number two in Britain all the way up until I was about 18, 19. And then I had injuries, injuries, injury. And then I just felt there was, there was no way I could ever take it into a senior level just because uh, either I wasn't good enough or physically I wasn't capable of moving to that level. And that's, you know, I would have been earmarked for one of those spaces. You know, when, when yeah. Bishop, at that point, it was Bishop. When I moved to Cambly, there was questions about whether I should go to Bishop Abbey and train there. And it's one of those things that like, is so difficult to predict. And by reducing your services, you can't, you're going to miss so many people on the outside. And somebody like me, it would have been a waste of money in terms of Olympic medals. It just wouldn't have done any, any good to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's difficult. And I know a lot of things come down to money and finance. Um, but I know in Wales and Scotland, there are, there are, um, resources to tap into that that could be used and utilized better i would say mm. i suppose a, a little bit of a weird question for you when did you realize you were good enough to medal at major championships when did you have that realization to say i'm not i'm not trying to be good enough i am good enough that's an interesting one yeah it was i think it was quite late for me to be honest but because I've always dreamed about going to the Olympics, obviously, as every kid does if they're interested in sport. But I think when I went full time at 18, I, yeah, I had no aspirations of, I was nowhere near going to get a world or European or any sort of medal. Like I was just focused on European Cups. And then when I got a European Cup medal, I was like, oh, I can retire happy now. I'm like, like I, I, I'm so happy with that. And then when I got a World Cup medal, I felt the same. Like, yeah, it was like a gradual increment, like improvement. But I think it was 2015 when I got silver in the World Masters that I thought, okay, I'm I'm ready to uh, medal at this level. And I think it was only getting that medal that made me realise it. Because I know the world's just before it. I didn't feel like I was at the, the level. So in 2015, how old was I then? 25, 24, 25? Mm. So... Yeah, it took it took a long time to really get to that. Oh, but I think, yeah, twenty fifteen was when I really believed I was ready to start getting those big medals. Then. And do you think for you, you it has to be a process, and that it has to be evidence based for you to be able to believe in it? Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm not one of these Fabios that can just say, yeah, I'm capable of winning the Olympics, and like just go out there and just take the world by storm, like. I need to hit every level, you know, like I needed to get a world European medal cup, sorry, European cup medal to make myself believe I could get a world cup medal to make myself believe I could get a Grand Prix medal. Um, yeah, it was very much a process one step at a time. And I feel like I can't miss any steps on the ladder, you know, mm. it's, um, I wish I could just believe in myself 100% from the start and just have the confidence to just go out there. But maybe it just wasn't at the level either. I think I'm, I wouldn't say I'm the most talented judo player in the world and I've had to really focus on, um, yeah, every stage of getting better and tactics and yeah, being professional. And um, so that probably fits with that mold of have been really process driven. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I've always, I've, I've always looked, looked up to Ewan Burton quite a lot in terms of his progression because maybe he didn't do so well at juniors and wasn't necessarily the most talented player, but he really grafted and worked at his uh, process and found a way to win. And um, so, yeah, I've really, I've kind of, used his I've always looked up to him and Darren's always been like yeah watch you and you know how he's been how professional he is like taking his traits and stuff so yeah I think 
forgot what the question was now. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you do. And that, that's, a, that's a really um, important thing as well, because most people think of Ewan and think of all these results, all of these major medals now. But at one point in the country, you had, he was like number four or number five, wasn't he? Because you had Graham Randall, Luke Preston, Thomas Cousins, even people like Pete Lomax that were all around that. And they were all very, very good judo players. And he, for anybody who who wants to have belief in the, in the process and the ability to, to keep working, he's that, he is a very good example, isn't he? Yeah. And for me, I, that was always going to be the way that I would have to progress if I was going to get, get anywhere. And that's where I needed a really good coach as well. Like, the benefits of having a good coach is, I just, I don't know, I think until you maybe you've had a good coach mm. and know exactly what you bring to the table, it's hard to to really explain to other people what they bring. But yeah, for me, somebody that wasn't uber talented at judo um, and has had to really work, process and develop really slowly to get to where I want to be. Yeah, a good coach and having advice along the way and them structuring your program and really working on it. Yeah, it's invaluable. Um, yeah, I can't really put into words how much Darren's uh, transformed transform my career or my projection, really. Um, so, yeah. So you say, um, you know, you said it was a long process for you and you don't believe you were Ubertan. When you were starting out, what was that like? And I'm talking like when you very first started judo. What was it like with your, with your parents as well, thinking about how you progressed through your judo career? Yeah, it's funny. I've been looking back at this recently because I did a like a coach athlete presentation for Sheffield Uni, and um, I was looking at my journey and just like reflecting on the influences I had along the way. And when I look back, I was so fortunate to have the parents I've had. Um, I've seen so many kids along the way have overly pushy parents or pushing them to be competitive, saying, "Oh, like if you lose, getting a lot of stick in the year." Or, but my mum actually did everything in the right way. I don't know if it was consciously or not, but she was always there supportive. She'd take me all around the country. If I wanted to go there, she would take me. Um, if I was feeling a bit disheartened at times, thinking, oh, I don't think I can do this anymore. I remember when I was, I think it was brown belt and no, it wasn't, it was green belt. I'd gone a whole year without, without winning a fight anywhere. And I was like, I was just crying one night. I was like, mom, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do it. And she was like, Nah, come on, I know you're not a quitter. You, you, you don't give up on things. Let's, let's see if you can just get your blue belt. Get your blue belt. And then, and then if you want to quit, then that's it. Okay, but we'll, we'll get that first. And then we'll as soon as I got my blue belt, like ignited my love for the sport again. And I was off again. The same thing happened when I was brown belt. Same words. Come on, you're not a quitter. You, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. You don't get your black belt. Just get your black belt and then you can quit. It's fine. And then the same thing happened. And she was just always so supportive and my, and my dad in the same way, but my mum was the one that would come around the competitions with me and always a shoulder to cry on when I, when I lost or, um, but it's just positive reinforcement all the time. Like when the coaches would say things, what I needed to work on and stuff, she'd just reinforce it at home or say, and always give me like encouragement. I always felt really supported and, and loved and yeah. And they were always like, oh, so which coaches along the way have really influenced you? And as a kid from up to 18, I had a million different coaches. Yeah. I mean, Richard and Philip Jones were my main ones at my local club. But to get any randori where I was, you had to drive an hour every night to um, get to like Samurai in, in Swansea or down to Cardiff for national sessions and stuff. So my mum would be taking me around all there. So I had a lot of different coaching influences. But actually, the person I was around all the time was my mum. And she was giving me the right messages of positive reinforcement and just 
telling me to work hard. I, oh, that was the other thing that a lot of kids, I think, struggle with is not getting selected for things. Mm. And I never got selected for Europeans or Worlds or anything as a junior. And with a lot of kids, that's when they quit because they're like, and the, or they have resentment against the association. Oh, it's unfair. They, they, they don't like me or they hate me or I should have been selected and quit. Um, I wasn't selected numerous times. And sometimes I was upset about that. But never once did my mum say to me, um, oh, you were outdone then. You should have been going. Oh, you should have definitely been the one going there. That's so unfair. She was like, you know what, Nat? Okay, you didn't make it this time. You, you tried hard. You just got to keep working. Just keep working. And in the end, that will pay off. Just keep your head down. And that was always the message I was given. So there was, and I, looking back, I think she just did everything in a really, really good way. I think also I never specialised in judo either. I was always playing netball, athletics, tennis, gymnastics, right up until like 18 when I went to, to uni. So I think having all those different sports and not being so focused like judo is my entire life, I think that really helped as well. And again, it was my mum that was like, you don't have to pick. If you enjoy doing them all, just just keep just keep doing them all and it'll it'll fall into place what it does. So yeah, I suppose she just always believed that it would just all <laughs> always going to fall into place. But I do think she was um yeah, her and my dad, my dad would fund everything. He'd work his ass <laughs> off to yeah. Um but yeah, I was really fortunate and I think parents without parents um well doing the right thing and supporting in the right way, yeah, you've got you you left at the first first hurdle, I'm afraid. Mm. And it's you, it's good fortune to have good parents, but no matter how many people I speak to about long term athletic development, well, more specifically, actually, talent identification, and you can have all these different protocols in place, and you could believe it's really good, but actually, it's all the stuff they're doing away from it. It's having a supportive family, a good home, like all these things actually make a massive difference on whether people are in, who are going to stay involved in the sport because there was many opportunities for you to quit. You know, you could have yeah. pulled out at any point and it was that positive messaging from, from your parents to say, you know, just stick with it, see how you go. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Mm. So. Yeah, so that's a, you said actually that you you done something for Sheffield Uni in there. What what did you do for Sheffield Uni, sorry? Um, it was a coach, I the title of it now, it's just a lecture for, um, it was the course we both did, you did the Masters in, is it, I can't remember what it was called now, Coaching Masters. You know what, right, so I, I'm sure I've told this story before, up until my final MSC piece, I never knew what the course title was, and I had, like, I looked back on all my work and I'd put different titles for what the course was, I didn't even have a clue, like, it was like, so hang on, it's Advanced Sports Coaching Practice, there you go. There we go. I'm going to forget that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, we did the same course. Um, and they asked me back to do a, um, a lecture on um, athlete-coach relationship uh, a few months ago now. Um, so yeah, when I was doing it, I was just reflecting really on my career and the, obviously the big influence that Aaron's had in the, uh, well, since 2014 when he became my coach. Um, but before then, I was just looking at the different coaches. I, I, had, I had about 20 coaches. Like along the way, I had so many different influences that all played like a small role which I'm really grateful for but when I look back and I just realized my mum was probably my coach until I was 18 not in terms she had no idea about judo I mean not a clue but in terms of all the external stuff um yeah she uh yeah she was really providing me with all that that support and I didn't really have a clue <laughs> until I reflected on it mm, yeah so hindsight's a great thing isn't it and what did you do your MSc in 
So obviously it was advice. What did you sort of specialise in towards the end? I did um, athlete-centred coaching. Go on, what's that? Go on, Go on tell me. Environment. <laughs> um, well, it's basically putting the athlete at the centre of everything, really, and looking at them as a person and developing them in every aspect of their, their life, really. Um, looking at the... Like, so, so physically, so from a physical standpoint, what do they need to do to move to the next level? Um, physically or what do they need to do technically to move to the next level um, and having a vision of where you want this athlete to be and all the steps that are going to get you there um, but also looking at the family life or their personal life um, looking at everything that makes them them like judo is elite sport is a small part of it is what you do on the mat but everything around it your environment how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis where your motivations are coming from all these things contribute to your performance so I think um, old school view on training is like you're on the mat, you're hard, you're tough, you don't have any feelings, you don't you don't have any problems in your outside life. They just that stop at the door, and when you're on the mat, it's just all about that. But I think this approach, it not not only feel like it gets more out of my judo, it also it helps me prepare for life after judo. Like judo is only a small such a small part of your life, which. When you're younger, you really don't realise. I mean, in the rear cycle, it was very much judo is everything mm. like there's around that. But this this cycle, like you, you start to realise, yeah, my career is going to end soon, and what am I going to do after that? Where am I going to go? Um, but I've been fortunate that Darren's always looking at that aspect for me. Like he was the one that made me made me <laughs> suggested I should attend the, the masters course. And, I had that made you. And now he's got ideas he wants me to do with P. What's the next one? PG. PhD. Oh, I don't know. PhD. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I say I'm not going to do it, but he's very good at persuading. So who knows? But um, yeah, he really looks at that aspect, making yourself like a whole person and be comfortable in your life in general. So yeah, I think it's a really good way to develop people, but it's a very time consuming way as well. I mean, when you've got a whole group of athletes, I know 20 athletes, one coach, to to do this approach, very difficult. You need the resources and the time. And I'm just really fortunate in Wales that I have a coach and a sport team around me that can facilitate this. And how did you find doing that around training? Because it's the work that goes into it is quite quite a lot, isn't it? How did you find that fitting around everything else? Um, well, actually, it came up I mean, the first few couple of years when you're doing the modules and stuff, there was a bit of yeah, I had to fit in with traveling and training and stuff, but it was only part-time. And I mean, I did my degree um, in biomedical science and I didn't have a clue what was going on in that half time. <laughs> so at least with this, I knew what was going on. Like I understood what I was writing about. So that made it easier and I was interested in it. Um, but yeah, and it was difficult in, like, at times because I'm going to have competitions or training things, but the actual master's bit the last year, it fell really nicely for me. It just as lockdown hit, um, I had to do my essay. Um, so actually it gave me a, a nice distraction from all the endless boredom of lockdown. So I just used the first lockdown to do my masters. So yeah, come at a really good time. That's actually really good timing. <laughs> yeah. It was bang on. All I did was train and do my masters. So it was, yeah, happy day. Mm. Now I want to, I want to ask you a question. We talked about when, when you're training, when you're preparing, you, you like the evidence, you like the process, you like going through one step at a time. What happens if it's not quite right? 
because there's no escaping the games is going to happen on this day. So you've got your your time, you're going to sort out the time difference, the heat, the, what happens is if something doesn't go quite right before the games. Yeah, you're right. And that, that is always a difficulty when you're so process driven and I just feed off the, the confidence I've done the work and I've done everything correctly. But I think on this occasion for the last year, I know I've done everything I possibly can. And I've just got to look at it back at it as the year, you know, and remember all the, the hard things I've overcome and the challenges that have been placed in the way and not so much look at it just the last two or three weeks, which is easy to do because we've all got short memories and we just remember the last bit. But I know there's enough positive things in there from the last year to give me confidence that I can be in the, the best place to perform. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm not religious in any way or anything like that, but I just believe in fate, you know, and belief and I just believe everything happens for a reason. So I think that's what I come back to when, when in the tough times really, when it's not quite gone to plan or, and yeah, I just believe it's gonna, everything happens for a reason. So I think when I go back to that, it, it works itself. So out. you're not gonna lose your shit if somebody like brings you the wrong cereal in the morning or something. No, I'm not quite that. Not, not quite <laughs> what that. is this? <laughs> I did think of days when I'd racked up, I don't know how many superstitions, you know, like always tying your belt before you've gone to that or wearing the same knickers or like, but it was, it was getting so long. Or I, I just had to cut it there because I was like, if I go on like this, I'm going to be, yeah, in a few years' time, I'm in a lot of state I'm going to be in. So yeah, I cut all my superstitions. <laughs> they are creeping back in a little bit, but they're, they're at a manageable level at the moment. <laughs> So when you go to the games, are you, is Darren allowed to go with you? No, he's not, which, yeah, that's a real rubbish part of obviously the whole coronavirus crisis as it is. But even before the crisis, um, the British judo's rules are that um, you only allow the British coaches in the chair and backstage at the games anyway. Um, so it was always something that we knew um, was going to be the case at the beginning of the cycle. Um, I don't think it's the best thing for performance. I think um, if they were to allow our personal coaches to be backstage, I think that could add a, a massive competitive advantage to the athletes, um, but it's not something that's possible. So, um, and it's something I've known for a long time. So we've, we've made plans to overcome that. And I'll be talking to Darren on a FaceTime during the competition in between the fights. And we've made videos um, in order of tactics and the plan for every person and stuff. So. Yeah, we've known about it for a long time, so we've made uh, plans to overcome this. So, yeah, I'm confident we can we can still do it with the way we're, we're doing. So you just um, not the easiest. It's not ideal. I obviously having him there would be the ideal. Mm. So you just have to box it and make sure you're you're as prepared as you can be to cope. Because that's it, isn't it? It's just cope. You have to have the confidence that you're capable. Everybody knows that you're capable of doing it. And you just need to believe in that, you know, you're able to do it on your, not on your own, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like obviously your whole career, you're, you're training to be autonomous and that's the aim is you want to be the best athlete to be and be able to do it all on your own. But the coaching always adds stuff, you know, like no matter how good you are at something, you're never perfect at something or you're never a hundred percent. So yeah. And in those moments, those pressure moments where your lactate is swarming your body, your brain's in a different place. Yeah, just having the input from some of the other side can make a massive difference. You've seen like Olympic finals won and lost by it or medal matches won and lost. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really important part of the 
Part of the game. Yeah, and I hear this a lot from, from not just coach, from loads of people about, um, you know, athletes should be pre- prepared. They should know what they're doing when they're in the middle of the match. And because there was, with the RGF bringing in so many rules to restrict when the coaches can speak and stuff, I remember the people saying, well, the athletes should be good enough to be able to adapt and cope and all that. And I think you should, but it's, it's not that simple. It's like, I don't know, a really easy, because you're in it, you're there, you're face to face, you're sometimes breathing out your backside and you're so absorbed in this contest, having that somebody who's able to look at it objectively, you know, it's like, you know, like if you sit doing a word search and you're sat there for ages looking for one word and somebody annoyingly just walks past and they can see it because they're able to look at it from a different perspective. You know, that's what it is for me with the coaching. The mat side coach is just able to look at it a little bit more objectively and not as emotionally. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think as well, when you walk, when you look, watch your fights back after, you're always like, oh, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I think that? Why? And yeah, it's like you look back, that's what the coach is doing on the side as well. Um, so I think the coach on the side is a big part. But like you say, in today's judo, where you can only speak in the mates, it does change things quite a bit. But you can also, a lot of people now have people in the crowd shouting, which is quite common as well. So um, yeah, I think if you can get, coaching the crowd that's probably your best shout at the moment actually might even be better than having someone in the chair because they can shout all the way through the contest yeah and i know um when i've listened when i've watched uh some of the the world cup definitely before covid and that i could always hear luke even though i'm watching it on a computer screen i could always hear luke screaming at ashley or somebody from the crowds all the time you can hear that can't you you almost tune into them yeah, when I'm um, whenever I'm fighting, like my girlfriend Sana, she fights a bit below me, and whenever I watch the fights back, all you can hear is her shouting. Like, <laughs> and in the fight, she's the only person I can hear as well because she's so loud in the crowd. Um, but yeah, no, I think the crowds. I've been in the crowd really does. Uh, bring an advantage for sure and there's that picture i i related to like um when i was in trouble like when my mum would shout me as a kid you can just it doesn't matter what the distance is it could be a couple of miles but you'd hear it and that's what it's like with your coach isn't it you just sort of tune into that yeah no you do yeah you can yeah it's funny because i often hear santa more than i hear kate mm. and when kate's the one cheer but she's just yellow at the top of her voice so um yeah no it's no it's good if you can have somebody in the crowd as well i think that's really good. And how was that for you? Well, you know, with your girlfriend Sana, when you, as a judo athlete, as a as a woman coming out and you know saying that you were gay. Um. Yeah. For me, it was really difficult. I really struggled with it for a long, long time. Um. I think, particularly in the Rio cycle, I think I was starting to get to that age when you get those questions: oh, Have you got a boyfriend yet? Have you settled down yet? Like, no, no. Um, then as your friends all start to settle down and stuff, it just becomes more more prominent. And I think in the Rio cycle, I just didn't really, I didn't want to be gay. Like, I, I really didn't want to be. And I was fighting it. And um, I can't remember exactly the point where I was like, okay, I'm definitely gay, but I'm not going to, I can't do anything about it because I don't want to do anything about it. So I think maybe like two years out from Rio, um, I kind of accepted in my head that that was why I was gay, but... I believed I could get the rest of my life without addressing it. And I was like, I'm just going to focus all on judo. And I just put everything into judo. And that was my escape. And yeah, judo was everything. And I think then after the Rio Olympics, I didn't get the result I wanted. Um, I just really was not happy and not in a good place. And 
I find it, yeah, I looking back now, I'm like, why did I make it such a big deal? Like it's just eating me up. I was losing sleep. I, yeah, I was in such a rubbish place. And then, I mean, I got, I think it was when I got my world medal. I remember just before the world medal, uh, we had the high load practice in Warsaw. Um, and Darren would come in and do the high load. And I don't know if you know his high load days, it's just pressure, 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 physical pressure, mental pressure. Yeah, they just put you through your paces. Um, and the whole morning session, I just had all this going on in my head about being gay and then the physical pressure on top. And then this guy from up north came down, Dermot Heslop, I think. And um, I had a masterclass with him that weekend in, up north. And he was just talking about it. He was like, oh, it's such a lovely area. You just, oh, you should, you should bring your boyfriend along. Like you have a lovely weekend. And like, obviously something, my, my stomach just churned and his, my face obviously said it all. And then he was like, uh, uh, or, or girlfriend or and then I just just like oh, my whole body was just like oh god I just went home then in that break and I just cried and I just cried for I don't know how long came back did the afternoon session and then went to the worlds got my first world medal super happy on the day but then straight after it I was just so sad like I was just really down and like I'd achieved what I wanted to achieve I'd just been chucking everything into judo for the last well forever because I thought that would be when I get to where I want to be, I'd be happy. Mm. Um, everyone tells you, oh, the medals don't make you happy. And they really don't. It's 100% true. It's better but than not having them. <laughs> yeah, it's better than not having them. But I mean, yeah, I was just in such a low place after that. And then I got to world number one shortly after. And then I was like, well, what? Like, okay, I've achieved what I want to achieve now. And I'm no happier than I was before. Um, and then that's when I cracked and I, I told Sally that I was living with at the time. Well, I didn't tell her option. Like, I, I, I started crying and then she was like, come on now, you've got to tell me what's wrong because she knew there was something wrong for a while because obviously when you live with somebody, you can, you can tell. Um, but yeah, finally, when I <laughs> told her and then told my family and then, yeah, after telling everyone, I now I'm like, well, why on earth did you let yourself get in such a bad place from something that literally I haven't had a bad comment like everybody's been so accepting and I always knew that my friends and family wouldn't care because my mum was always said no matter if any of my kids were gay it literally doesn't matter um so I was really fortunate I had a really good family and friends around me and stuff but I still couldn't bring myself to to tell anyone about it or face it because I just didn't want to um and now looking back I just I just think it's really important to get the story out there as well because I know there's a lot of people that have gone through the same thing as I have and some people aren't in such a fortunate position where they've got supportive friends and family around them. Um, and it's a lot more, yeah, I find it super difficult having that such a, like really good people around me, but if you haven't, yeah, I can only imagine how hard, hard it is for people to um, just accept who they are and be confident to portray that to the world when, because when you're straight, you don't have to come out. Mm. Everyone, everyone was straight. Nobody ever asked me, oh, are you gay? Like it was all, yeah, we, we just assume that everyone just assumes you're straight. Always asking, oh, I've got a boyfriend yet. Um, so I think, yeah, that's what makes it difficult as well. And I think maybe for me personally, I, I didn't really know any gay people either. Mm. Um, but Kate, I knew Kate as my coach, but there wasn't any people on the team or any of my friends or, yeah. And if you, you don't have, you don't know people that you could, I don't know, talk to or ask about it, um, makes it more difficult. And um, what could have been done to, because you're right, like, it's so difficult for me to really understand what you felt. And as somebody who doesn't have that, it, it seems silly that you felt like that, but that emotion was very real to you. And how, 
what what could have been done looking back what what do you was there anything apart from time that could have helped you earlier on that's a really yeah that's a really hard one because when I look back like like my mum and dad had always said like to all three well, I've got two sisters as well and they'd always said growing up oh if any of you are gay we are completely fine with it like we just want you to be happy like so I knew that wasn't something that they were mm-hmm. would ever but then I don't know what it is it's culture I suppose like I think uh, in judo culture in general and when you like I was growing up it was very male dominated and people would always say things like oh he's so gay or she's so gay or like it was always using a negative term and all the jokes around it were always negative and I'd always just grown up thinking it was not a good thing to be or it was like yeah it was a bad thing like I, I'm a bit of a people pleaser as well I always want to fit in or just do the norm like I don't know get good grades go to uni get a good job like do all just the standard typical things but so yeah I think culture in general is very much mm. but people and looking back on it now people don't mean it in the way they say it either it's just something easy to attack if you know what I mean like if there's a gay person they do something that's a bit out of the ordinary like oh you're so gay like oh do you know what I mean it's and when you ask them or reflect on it after oh no I didn't mean it about that it's just it's just something we say mm. um so yeah I think those little things build up and you just you latch onto them all the little when there's something going on in your head you just latch onto all the little things other people haven't even clocked on that they've said something said something that's going to affect you or but you're just tuned into all those little comments and you just build them up in your brain and you just think it's a much bigger thing than it actually is um yeah but it's your nobody can live your life can they nobody is your reality to how thing things are and I think it doesn't matter what it is if that's how you're feeling then that's how you're feeling isn't it and as you said I think there are going to be people who listen to this and might be in the same situation and I guess not that you're an oracle on this or anything like but do you have any anything that you could sort of say well you know just just have a conversation or there, there's any anything that you would suggest yeah, I think talking to people was the biggest thing for me. As soon as I was able to talk, things got massively better really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, talking, yeah, talking, but it's, you've got to have people that you, you've got to, it's got to be the right time for you when you're ready as well. Because like I had loads of people around me that I trusted and and I was close to, like, my mum, I now can tell her anything in the world. And I think that hurt her the most, really, with the whole thing that I couldn't go to her. I didn't go to her and tell her. But, like, when I tell my mum, then I know I've got to tell my dad. And I know I've got to tell my sisters because I would never want to tell one of them something yeah. and not tell them, you know? So suddenly it's gone from having been able to tell one person and you've got to tell four. And in my head, like, telling four people, oh, my God. But And you know, like, when somebody tells somebody something, you always think they're going to tell one more person. Yeah. <laughs> when you tell one person, they so before I knew it, it could get out of control. And I, I felt like I really wanted to control everyone I told. So it was gradual and at my pace. Um, but talking was the thing. You just really need to reach out to somebody. And as soon as I, I told Sal, she, yeah, she helped me no end. And I told Meg, my family, yeah, people close to me. Oh, that's not with that. Um, but yeah. Um, talking was the, the big thing. So I know you said you you told Sa- you told Sally, and Sally's the nicest person in the world. I think like I've known Sally for a very long time, and she's really nice. But what you already said, um, you were at Warsaw at the time, weren't you? And Kate was there, and Kate is 
you know, Kate's gay. And why, what made you feel like you couldn't speak to her about it? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I don't know. Because again, Kate was one of the first people I did tell once I'd started telling, but it's like I couldn't tell anyone. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why. The only reason I was able to tell Sally is because I was living with her 24 seven and you can't hide your emotions. Like I just broke down and I had to, it was like forced upon me to do it, you know? Um, I was just really lucky that Sally's the person she is and she's so kind and nice and uh, was really supportive um, and then really helped me in telling everybody else. But yeah, it's such a weird, it's, it's really strange. And I suppose unless you've gone through it to know how it builds up in your head and yeah, yeah you kind of create a, a problem in your head that a lot of people don't actually see as a problem. Because when I told Darren, he was like, what, that's it, you're gay. And then I was like, yeah. Uh, I, I said I've really built up a lot this has taken me a lot to tell you this and he was like oh yeah but it's fine like what, what's wrong and, I, I, and then I told him like how it's been affecting my training and my life and he's like oh wow I never he, he just didn't realize how it could affect so many aspects of your life and that that is hard isn't it because I you know what it's it's most probably naivety as well on my behalf but I just didn't fully appreciate any of that uh, 100% there's no way I would have believed that it would have been yeah it does sound really naive that it could have held you back that much yeah it's funny isn't it because I felt like it held me back like in Rio I do genuinely think that if I come out before that I could have been in a better place mentally because I was in the lead up to Rio I, I was wor really worried about going out after the games or um the media attention like when they ask you oh you got a boyfriend or who's just celebrity crush like those little things were like really eating me up and causing me a lot of anxiety which they might seem trivial to a lot of people, but those are things where in going to Olympic Games, those aren't the sort of things you want to be stressed about or worried about. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, what was the question again? <laughs> I'm not sure. I've got it. I've got it. Oh, really. <laughs> so I guess now then. Oh, that was it. Yeah, yeah. So I think, although it, it has it held me back, I do think it really narrowed my focus because I put everything to the judo. Mm. So I think it actually made me a better judo in those, better judo player because I was so, I was just using it as a distraction and turning everything into it. But it could have ended up really bad if my judo hadn't really kicked off like it did. I could have been in a much worse state for it. I was lucky that my judo well unfortunately that is the parallel isn't it when you start identifying that this is your worth this is your value as a judo player rather than a human a person and all those sorts of things and then it doesn't go well then that's just a slippery slope especially when you're dealing with not being able to tell people about your personal situation as well yeah no 100 percent. like looking back on it yeah it could have turned out yeah a lot worse if um, my judo hadn't been progressing in the way it had been um so again i was really lucky in that sense yeah and i i would argue now from you know watching you do judo and stuff i I've, would you say that actually now you are in a lot better situation because you don't have to hide that anymore you can be you you can express yourself how you want to express yourself and just focus on being a better judo player and a better person yeah 100 percent. i think um it feels like a massive weight has lifted off my shoulders. And like, I felt like pretty confident in every aspect of my life before, but that was just holding me, holding me back. I just feel like I couldn't be myself. Um, yeah, and, and now I feel really comfortable. And yeah, 
like obviously it was a really hard period to go through but yeah I'm really glad I went through it and I've come out the other side and I'm in a really really good place now mm. and yeah yeah and I guess in lockdown actually didn't help your relationship as well because you could because yeah, she's in Holland isn't she yeah so she lives in Holland um she's um, going to the games in the 70 kilos so um no that was definitely another another challenge long distance relationships are, are difficult at the best of times but I mean when you've got a lockdown imposed and you can't actually travel across the border um yeah there was a few months where we couldn't see, couldn't see each other which was really difficult and yeah she had some uh, was going through a tough period as well so mm. um yeah it was really really difficult year um but we, we got through it and we're still we're still together so um, yeah so uh, before we finish i'm conscious because obviously we started late as well and uh, i don't want to keep you forever i know it's your recovery day and you don't spend your whole time talking to me um what about after the games? What 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 are you thinking about after game? I know it, we're not even there yet, but regardless of medal, no medal, what do you think? How how would you like to? What's going to happen after? That's a very good question. Mm. Um, I have been considering a lot. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure if I want to retire after the games or I want to go into the uh, into a job. Um, I don't know exactly what job I want to do. I, I know I want to work in sport um, in some capacity, maybe coaching, maybe more of a managerial role, um, maybe hops. I quite like the idea of that. Um, so I'm probably going to look to get some experience in some sort of job roles in the year after, regardless of whether I carry on or, or retire. Um, looking to go out to Holland and spend a lot more time out there. Um, Commonwealth is on the horizon now as well. So um, Wales have really supported me over the years and, I think it would be, an, like, if I was going to retire, I think that would be a nice ending. So I think the Commonwealth will will definitely happen regardless mm. of whether I get a medal at Olympics or not or carry decide to carry on or not. Um, but, yeah, I think I've just put in everything into this Olympics and medal or no medal, I know I've given it my all and I've done everything I can. And, and hopefully, like, I think on my best day that I'm capable of getting a medal. So, um that's the plan so that's plan a and then um yeah if that doesn't go to plan then we'll we'll reconsider <laughs> yeah brilliant right now natalie i really do appreciate you giving me your time and i wish you very very best of luck for the games and not just games but for for the future oh thank you very much vince um it's been really nice chatting to you as well cheers mate yeah, so big big thank you to natalie and i can't it was so stressful before the the podcast I literally locked on had everything set up and then I was sat at my home at my home office and everything just crashed and Natalie had obviously taken time out of her day we'd organized it she was there um <laughs> yeah and everything just crashed I had to send her a quick message saying I'm so sorry Natalie please please just wait on so yeah so I am thankful to Natalie for staying on but I it was just a really great interview there was no there was no what I really liked about it is I felt like Natalie was really honest with herself with her judo and and there were there was nothing said to try and please me or or the thought about you guys unfortunately I think but that's why I think it made made it such a good interview and thinking about how important her start was everything that they're going through to get her ready to to be able to compete in Tokyo 
I just, yeah, I, I just really enjoyed it. And I hope I hope everybody listening to this gains something from that, the, the commitment from the athletes. Um, you know, like they're going to, to an Olympic Games now. Like Tokyo this morning just literally declared um, a state of emergency. So they're going, this is the games that every judo player has been looking forward to, to go in like and trying to compete their best for packed out stadium over there judo is one of their top sports they love the judo players it's going to be it's going to be very surreal walking into that stadium if it's empty or maybe just they'll let some judo players in there and pass the test but it's going to be hard really hard for them the and being able to cope mentally and deal with it and yeah i, I just it was so so good i i want to say as well right so all the players were, were announced this week. So Ashley McKenzie's qualified for his third Olympic Games and this time he's done it as a self-funded athlete. So like Natalie, he decided that he didn't want to be at the National Centre so you have to forego the funding and everything that goes along with that. And he's still qualified and not only that, he's the only male to qualify which is just unbelievable to think. We're, we're only sending one male and the male that we are sending has done it through the, the support of their club. And that got me thinking. I, I was looking at the, the press release. And let's not forget, like, as well, Sally qualified, although she retired. She qualified um, for the Games. Nakoda, I think, got a spot for the Games. But for personal reasons, I think she's, she's having a baby, actually. Uh, obviously, she's not go, she's not accepted her place. And then you've got... Ben and Megan Fletcher that have qualified for Ireland, um, Priska Awiti Alcaraz, um, I really hope I said your name right, has qualified for Mexico, and Ebony Drysdale's qualified for Jamaica. Those four people fought for Great Britain before that, you know. And I was thinking, even in the press release where we had um, Ashley, Chelsea, Lucy, Gemma Howe, Natalie Powell, and Sarah Allington all named. There was a little bit about them. Um, British Judo announced how hard it was for the team to prepare and get ready for it. And I was just thinking, like, where... I feel like there should be a bigger emphasis on a, a big well done to the clubs and the coaches behind it. And that goes across the board because many coaches coach, especially at grassroots level, for the love of the sport. And... It's almost like there's no love ever sent back to it. So, you know, and I think giving a shout out to the clubs and, you know, leading up to the games, like there should be features on on the, maybe the clubs that they started at, their, their progression, like having interviews with them about what's the backstory to you getting to this point. You know, and let's take something like Ashy, somebody I know a little bit better. You know, he would have started at Mobley, which I... Correct me if I'm wrong, actually, actually. Um, which was Basil. Uh, Wilsden, um, which was Lee Davies. He progressed through, had a few clubs, and then he went to Cambly full-time. So his coach that he's working with now is Luke Preston. You know, having some sort of lineage, how much good publicity is that for, for the clubs and them being able to advertise that to their local area and get some paper and... By doing that, you're going to get some kids interested in it, you know, and, you know, parents looking around saying, wow, look at this. I didn't realise this was on my doorstep, you know, and I I don't know all of the players really well, but 
going off the top of my head, I think Chelsea is Chelsea Giles, who's qualified uh, really strongly. Actually, she's I believe she's from Coventry Judo Club. Um, which has had some really good coaches there. And I think Simon Moss might be her coach. So please correct me if I'm wrong on that. And I'm more than happy shout out to whoever the coach, Lucy Renshaws from SKK uh, up north uh, with Pete Blood. And like Pete Blood, actually he'll be... He would be really good to get on this, and I'd have to try and if he come on, I'd have to maybe reduce the amount he swears actually. But yeah, Pete, like he's had so many great players. Like you look back in history of the players that he's worked with, it's really good. Like Becky Livesey, uh, Amy Livesey, Amy actually qualified as well. They're from his club. Owen Livesey's from his club. He's had a great pedigree of good judo players, and I'd just love to see a bit of you know a bit of. A background about that let the judo world know because he's not going to shout about it you know we've said it before on on our marketing podcast how coaches don't shout about their achievements it's almost in our culture but they shouldn't need to british judo should be shouting that our areas should be shouting that um everybody should be talking about how well these clubs have done um so Gemma how I, I correct me if i'm wrong as well you would think by now i'd be a proper I'd actually do some research before I go off on a rant and talk about stuff. But that's the problem. I don't. I just get on it. Gemma Howe, I think she went to Samurai Judo Club first. And then, and then she moved to Wolverhampton Judo Club, which is Bill Kelly. And Bill Kelly, once again, has had a great pedigree of starting. Craig Fallon started at his club. How many people knew that? You know, so these things should be said. They're at the centre now those players are at the centre now but what happened before they got there what made those coaches think the centre was the best place because there's coaches that don't believe the centre is the best place what made them believe it maybe that's a really good podcast to do actually talking about why they think that's the best place for their players um, you got Natalie Powell obviously that we've heard her club coach she's working really closely with Darren Warner Darren Warner worked with Gemma Gibbons before she got her Olympic medal you know how many people know that and then Sarah Adlington, I really don't know. So Sarah, obviously, is at Edinburgh Judo Club now with Billy Cusack working with the team there. I really don't know how uh, Sarah started, but why don't we know? We should we should know all about that, and we should have it all shouted from the rooftops. So, yeah, so I, I will try. The next time I decide to go on a little rant like that, I will try and actually get some facts and figures to, to back it up. But, yeah, I, was just, look, I literally just had it on my phone reading through the, the press release, and there's... You know, it talks about the player, it talks about what they've done, their medals. And then it goes down and talks about what the chief demission for the Tokyo Olympic Games says. Then it talks about what the performance director says. And then it talks about what the chairman says, then the chief exec. And yeah, I just think they've got, what else are they (laughs) doing? Like, this could sound really bad, but like, sell the players, sell the sports, sell the clubs, tell everybody about it, shout, because nobody else is going to do it. And especially some of the beginning clubs, the origin clubs, the grassroots clubs, they maybe don't have the capacity or the time frame to be able to to, to do that. So but if British Judo released a really nice thing, or the area, really, because there's lots of areas that aren't doing anything, you know, if they released a nice little thing to say, oh, this is the history of where they come from, this is what's happened, and they could just go, oh, yeah, let's send this to our press officer, you know, um, local newspaper, how good would that be? I just think, yeah, I, I think to, it's great about the player. And also, like, the players that didn't make it, there's so many people that, 
like thinking about my friend Nathan Burns who tried qualifying for Ireland in the end because of circumstances and you know think about what are they dealing with now I know how hard he trained how much effort he put into it and there's going to be many players like like him around the world how are they feeling right now what how are they being looked after what is the care package in place for those guys it's hard we always talk about the ones that qualify the ones that have made it but there's going to be loads of very disappointed athletes now and there's going to be a lot of athletes that feel like they weren't given a fair fair shake of the tree so yeah anyway i think i, I was going to talk about other stuff and then uh, i went off on one but i think great podcast let's finish on the positivity of england hopefully winning the world cup on sunday i'm going to be screaming at the tv i hope you guys are even even gary edwards put away so gary was one of our guests i can't remember what episode he's got more football shirts than i know I, I think he's put on his italian shirt get your england top back out gary put it on support us uh yeah and i just hope you guys have a great weekend it's looking like clubs are opening up for adults soon restrictions are easing in britain stay safe enjoy your judo and if you've got anything that you want me to talk about anybody you want me to speak to send me a message on instagram facebook twitter um you know send me an email vince at vincegilcom.co.uk i've actually just finished uh, i've just finished a little book that i've written um winning structure as well which is done it's it's going to be ready for um apple books uh, kindle all that sort of stuff but I've just got so much work on. There's so much club stuff going on at the moment. So much prep, getting things ready. I haven't got... I'd love to be working on the podcast all the time. I'd love to be working on my YouTube. Obviously, YouTube suffered because of the social distancing. I've not been able to do anything. I've got a few uh, different ideas for my YouTube channel moving forwards. I'd love to be creating more courses. I'd love to be doing so much more stuff uh, for the online community. But actually, just work is just so busy at the moment. Just try it. The classes are absolutely rammed and trying to expand you know we're, we're sitting at a point now where we're just thinking about how we keep moving forwards with the club and it, this side's really neglected and the podcast has been the one thing i've been trying to get out every single week and i hope you guys appreciate it every single week i've been trying to just dig away make sure that one part is done for for everybody listening and I hope you guys are enjoying it. But do get in contact. Let me know what you're thinking. What would you like me to talk about? Uh, I think I, in, the, in the next few weeks I might do uh, a discussion one again where I talk about some key ideas. But yeah, what would you like before the games? What sort of coverage would you like me to talk about before the games? Now, I'm not a stato as well. I cannot. I love watching it, but I don't know the stats. I'm not, I'm not going to say geeky enough, but I just don't have the time to go through all the stats. I would. I would, I would read them. But yeah, no, I just, let me know what you think and we'll get it onto the podcast. But have a great weekend, guys. Hope you, whenever you listen to this, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope to speak to you guys very, very soon. Take care. Judo talk, talk, judo talk.